Spike Lee has always been the engine behind approving change in the Black community. To quote Spike Lee in this film, let's wake up. You gotta understand the reason why I want to try and make things right. Please wake up. The culture that I saw in the film is a culture that I'm living now. Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's thrilled to welcome the artistic and creative Tugane Davis. Tugane is here to join me in breaking down the many shades of college life at Mission College in Spike Lee's 1988 musical masterpiece, School Days. But before we get into the gamma of it all, I'd like to tell you a little about Tugane Davis. Tugane is a proud Howard University alum. Her degree in fine arts in business and entertainment has led to an exciting career as a performer and entrepreneur with experiences ranging from Black entertainment television to church sanctuaries to the Apollo Theater of New York. She's performed on notable stages, worked with renowned artists, and continues to entertain and educate with passion, conviction, and purpose through teaching, directing, filmmaking, and philanthropy. Tugane is a loving wife and mother of two daughters who's living God's purpose. Welcome to the podcast, Tugane. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm wonderful. Oh my gosh. It's such <laughs> a joy to have you. I'm so glad you invited me. I'm so, this is so homegrown. Thank you. I'm just so excited. Oh my goodness. I love your podcast. So I'm oh. really glad. I'm really glad to do this. I'm so happy to have you. And Tugnate, we met in high school theater and drama class. Yes. Okay, that was a long time ago. We don't have to talk long about how long ago, ago that was. But I remember you were truly, even way back then, a star. Like you were just a triple threat. And I oh, remember wow. so specifically. We did a show. It was a Broadway review. Okay. And we performed the title song Hair from the musical Hair. Yes. Yes. And your voice was just like the powerhouse behind the song. Yes. That's like one of my biggest memories of you was you in hair. Wow. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really like about doing things like this with the people that you know is you get back who you are. Yes. If we don't reach out to the people we know and love and who are a part of our community, you know, you don't get to stay grounded. You know, you just kind of go out and you're just doing your thing and you're mm-hmm. hoping everything kind of comes together. So it's kind of interesting for you to say that because I've gone through some journeys with my voice. I've gone mm-hmm. through some journeys creatively. I've always been a much more confident dancer than a vocalist. Okay. But I needed that. I needed that. I well, really it's did. so true. I mean, your voice was the standout voice and it really did just like carry the whole ensemble number. And what's been so great about reconnecting with you over social media is the fact that like, okay, I don't know, 28 years have passed. And I've looked at the things that you've done in your life and your career. And I'm like, well, I'll be, she truly is a star. Like she has been a star for the last 
28 years since I've known her. So it's mm. just been really cool. And I have things to show you. Oh boy. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. I didn't pull some stuff out. I could have probably pulled some stuff out too. <laughs> Next time. Next time. <laughs> so I pulled out my high school yearbook. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you signed it. You said, I'll always love, always miss you. P.S. Howard University. <laughs> Exclamation point. Oh, okay. So small detour. Yeah. I got my acceptance to Howard really late. Oh, did you? Not really late, but really late. Having gotten my acceptance to Howard really late, see that exclamation point had a mm. reason for it. Okay. <laughs> there was power behind that. Like I'm going to Howard. <laughs> and I applied to Howard on a fluke. It was not on my radar because I felt it was way too out of reach. Okay. My mother told me, she said, you know, just, you got to do some random one, just the supply. And you never know. Dream schools. Yes. You've got, I have a son in college right now. We were like, you got to apply to some dream schools. Do it. Yeah. This film is yeah. all about, you know, college life at an HBCU. Right. And right. so was Howard always a dream of yours, like from a young age? You don't grow up and not know about Howard, especially right. in the Black community. Uh-huh. But Howard, for me, was not tangible because we we don't have really the opportunity to live life in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Everybody else looks at us. We don't quite see ourselves all the time mm-hmm. and how we're performing and how we're impacting and how we're changing, how we're influencing. We don't really see that because we live from the inside out. People see us from the outside in. Mm-hmm. So for me, there was just way too many well-known alumni for me to become a part of that tapestry. Mm-hmm. I mean, HBCU, great, but Howard, I mean, you had Debbie Allen and Felicia Richard. Yes, I know. I was applying to their department. Mm. And so Howard was not tangible. I actually got my acceptance over the phone. Because I was wow. like, Mom, I haven't gotten my letter yet. And I mean, we're coming up on June. We're getting ready to Oh, graduate. girl, you're like, I need to make some plans. I was like, um, it, so it was that type of thing where it's like, I haven't been denied, but I haven't been accepted. Yes. I don't know what's going on. So I called that admissions office and this woman confirmed. She was like, I would like to congratulate you. I was like, ah! I screamed oh. her ear off on the phone. I screamed her ear. It just seemed unrealistic. Some dreams, you can see them. Sure. I think what God really does is he has plans for you that are outside the realm of what you could even think or imagine. Howard was that for me. That is so exciting. Yeah. In terms of this film, then tell me about your history with it. Did it at all influence your desire to go away to school, to be part of Greek life? Or was it just a film that you really loved because you loved the music? Tell me about how you were introduced to it. You know, I think it definitely did warm me up to the opportunity. Ah. I'm a first-generation college student. Okay. So, you know, I really like to say that you live based off of what you see. Sure. Belief that it can happen for you is much deeper than what you see in your everyday. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a very tangible thing until my mom started to verbalize things. My mom was very much a part of being sure that I, myself and my brother had, you know, hope 
and was like, this is what you can do. This is where you can go. And, you know, exposing us to things. But it wasn't, there was no one around me in a sorority. There was no one around me who had come from HBCU. There was no one around me who was regularly talking about their college experience. So it was right. It wasn't being like physically modeled in front of you. Right. So, I mean, like my kids, I mean, my oldest, she's already been to Howard already before mm. she was there when she was two. So, you know what I'm saying? She's been to, <laughs> right. She's going to grow up being involved with it. Right. My yes. husband and I have endless stories. Our mm-hmm. best friends are our college roommates and mm-hmm. you know, the, the culture that I saw in the film is a culture that I'm living now. But the film really, it was a change in my everyday. So like, for example, I have a cousin who was really trying to figure out if she would accept her invitation to go to Howard. She just got accepted. Okay. And even though she knows me as her cousin, mm-hmm. going away. Oh, it takes so much courage. I didn't have it. I didn't even really understand that going away to school was an option at all for me. I was just way too timid and shy. I lived at home and went to college. I went locally and it all shook out fine in the end. But again, it's like it wasn't being modeled. So I didn't even really understand that that was a possibility for my life. So for your mom to tell you, you know what? I see, I see something in you. I see a big opportunity. Just try, just try. It takes so much courage to try. It does. Just as a mom now, I think to myself, I'm like, I don't know how my mom just really had the well inside of her to pull from, to say here, this is how you fly. Exactly. Yes to that. It's setting you free. And I mean, our high school seniors are so young. They're our babies forever. That is is a tough one to just let them fly. And Howard is not in our backyard. It's the whole other side of the country. The whole other side. Yes. (laughs) Cali. It's like so far away. So I think it was a brave move. So what did you think about the music in this film? The music is fantastic. The dancing, the choreography. Yeah. I mean, it was extremely transformative. I mean, because for me, there's so much communicating in the arts. If you're not an artist, you don't really understand the communication that's happening so regularly through creativity. Mm -hmm. And that's what this film did. The level of communication that was going out that spoke to so many volumes through the music. I mean, Spike Lee, I mean, his dad has done majority of his, the scores on his filmographies, but Mm. the horns, Spike Lee let his dad just ride with these horns. And when you use a horn in this particular type of way, it's just this talk. And the way that Spike took the beginning part of the film and the end part of the film, because the first thing that you hear when this film comes up is the water. Okay. And when you hear this water, you're trying to visualize it. Then he gives you this picture of slaves on a ship. Mm-hmm. So it becomes real clear between the beginning and the end that we're trying to tie in this reality of what has really happened to us culturally how we're really engaging with it culturally and how do we need to resolve it culturally. And we need to wake up to the reality of what it's caused between the middle passage 
and where we are now. And, and it's amazing how relevant it is. But, you know, for me, the choreography between the, the kind of call and response, as well as the, the challenge between the two women groups, mm-hmm. because you would think at first that it was really dealing with the light skin and the dark skin women. He dealt with that in the film, but he didn't really deal with it in the, the kind, it's kind of like a barbershop scene, the beauty shop. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that beauty shop scene where they've got these two groups opposing each other through dance, it's really more about the difference in their hair. Yes. Otis really just, I mean, he had a real depth because he he combined Jitterbug, Lindy Hop with African and jazz. Yes. He combined all of those together in that scene. And if you deal with the coronation ball, oh my goodness, in college, we love that one. It was something that, I mean, every time you want to perform, it's like, oh, we're going to do that scene from the Coronation Ball where the four women were dancing on stage. Not only was this film such a marker in high school, but it was a marker in college too. Mm. So you're talking about a 1988 film. I'm in college in 1994. Right. It was still very relevant. That's what I was going to say. Well, okay. For any listener that hasn't seen the film, let me just give a little quick synopsis about this. The film basically follows the tensions between Greek life students and socially conscious students at a historically Black college over homecoming weekend. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution said, quote, fresh off his 1986 feature debut, she's got to have it, Lee's school days tackled several controversial issues, Mm -hmm. class, gender, sex, ethnicity, that had been otherwise self-contained within the Black community. And talking about this, there's some really big and relevant to this day issues, right? But I have to tell you, of course, as a white woman, I grew up in the suburbs. I'm probably the least qualified person to weigh in on any of these themes, especially within the Black community. But this film really, not only did it shine a light on these things, it taught me so much that I didn't even know about. It did that while also being incredibly entertaining, right? I mean, it's funny, it's serious, it's musical, it's sung, it's dance, it's ridiculous hazing rituals of fraternities, and and it's these really serious themes, and the funny stuff kind of happens all around it. You're laughing, and you're thinking, and you're enjoying the music, and you're asking yourself questions, and... Mm. I mean, that's a true testament to the genius of Spike Lee because every film of his makes you think, but yet you're thoroughly entertained. If someone sat you down and said, I want to talk to you about these issues, you might not be so open to receiving the messages, whereas this, it feels like these issues become more accessible because it's also entertaining. I think that's what entertainment has the opportunity to do. Yeah. And that's one of the things as a filmmaker... It's a challenge. It it really is a challenge because when you deal with issues like I'm I'm dealing with this Black maternal mortality issue, it's a heavy issue. Sure. However, I still got to live my life. I've still got to find joy. I've still got to be happy. I've still got to find my source of energy to move on and beyond where I am right now or where I was four years ago or, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think through entertainment, we have an opportunity to do that. And Spike Lee has really 
you know, he's been criticized, to be honest, with, you know, being too serious because it's like, oh, I just want to be entertained. Well, here comes Spike Lee coming with these messages mm-hmm. in his film. Like every time he does a film, can't we just, and it's like, no, we can't. That's the whole purpose of what, what yeah. we do as entertainers. Mm-hmm. We have to give some level of comic relief in order to bring in a change. Film changes people. Film adjusts thinking. Mm-hmm. As an artist, I'm not adjusting anybody's thinking. If I'm just giving you what you're looking for, I'm not doing anything. And we all are here for a purpose and I'm not accomplishing anything that's going to transform your life. If I don't bring up issues and I don't address them, I, at some point I got to tie a bow on it. Mm -hmm. So you may not necessarily like the conclusion that I present in this piece, but for this particular segment of what I'm working on right now, Mm -hmm. I got to put a bow on it. So that it is received. It's got to be palatable. Some topics are just so painful. They're so heavy. They're so shocking that we just want to put our hands up and go, no, our fingers in our ears, la, la, la. That's not really happening. Or because I don't see it with my own eyes in my environment, it's not happening. Oh, no, no, no. That's not real. Well, it actually is. And it's very real for these characters in this environment. So, hey, guys, to quote Spike Lee in this film, let's wake up. Let's look at what's happening. Because in this film, we follow Dap, played by Lawrence Fishburne. He's a senior at his college, and he's protesting his school's involvement with apartheid. He wants the school to divest from South Africa. Other schools have done this, and they haven't. And he's got a really big problem with this. And there's a whole segment of the school population that just doesn't really care about these issues. Right. They're represented by Gamma Phi Gamma, the frat. And, you know, they're like, gosh, would you just like chill, Dap? Just chill. You're so serious. Judgmental. (laughs) So judgmental. And so it causes this huge rift between these, I'm just going to call them socially conscious students. Right. Okay. Versus the guys that are just here in college as the big wigs ready to party. So we're basically just following these two groups that just can't seem to get along. And in the middle of this is Spike Lee's character. (laughs) I love him. Daryl Halfpint, who wants to pledge this fraternity, but he's like the cousin of Dap, the socially conscious student. And of course, the head of the fraternity, Julian, big brother almighty. Uh-huh. Yes, big brother on my team. <laughs> and Dap used to be friends. Right. So there's this huge rift between them. Just a note on the casting of Lawrence Fishburne for Dap. Fishburne told the Washington Post that he was out on the street one day when like a young Spike Lee tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, you're Larry Fishburne. You're a good actor. And he introduced himself and he's like, you know what? I'm going to make a movie someday and you're going to be in it. And you know what? He was. Nice. And interestingly, Spike Lee actually wanted to create real life tension on set between the two rival groups. So he gave the Greek life students way better like hotel accommodations as compared to the socially conscious students, because he wanted like their experiences to be very different. So they didn't really get along on set. Wow. You know, there are some very extreme things that I think directors do to 
get what they need. Yes. At the time, Lawrence Fishburne was still known as Larry uh-huh. in his work when he he did this. But he, I mean, he was a young actor. I mean, oh yeah, he's been in the industry for a long time. So even as a kid, you know, and that technique of taking real life scenarios with your your cast in order to get the reactions that you need on camera. That's hard as a director. It's almost like reality TV before reality TV even existed. Yes, it's actually really true. And, you know, Francis Ford Coppola did the same thing on the set of The Outsiders between the greasers and the socias. He gave them totally different accommodations. He kept them very separated on set. He wanted to create a sense of genuine rivalry between these two groups. So it's very interesting to see how that translates. Yeah. You know, and even this character Dap, who's so socially conscious and he wants the school to take action, the school administration is just not having it. I think they were just more concerned perhaps about the reputation because Spike Lee started filming this at his alma mater, Morehouse. Yeah. Okay. But he was asked to stop filming because the board of directors was afraid of how the college would be portrayed, how specifically historically black colleges would be portrayed in the film. So Spike had to finish filming at Morris Brown College. Well, the thing of it is, is some of the opening scenes dealt with freeing Mandela. At the time, Mandela was not a free man. So it's kind of like the Ukraine issue that we're dealing with Mm -hmm. in some regards, where that's happening over there. Right. It's not affecting us. We don't need to make any changes right now because it's not really affecting us right now. Right. So Black colleges, especially Howard, have had a history of student protests. Happened when I was there. Mm-hmm. Spike brought so much accuracy to this film, of course, because, you know, he's a product of an HBCU. He knows what that kind of culture is like. but. Right. You know, if the students at our Black colleges do not raise these issues, then the administrators, the faculty and the staff are not going to be as connected to the heartbeat of what's really happening socially, because we know that our youth keep that heartbeat. There is a reality that we have to acknowledge once we become adults, we have to give an ear to where things need to change and why they need to change. I don't know if that film really taught me that, oh, when you go to Howard, you're gonna, there's going to be a protest. It's, it's just going to be the thing. It, it wasn't necessarily that. Right. But as a teenager, it, it brought me to a level of consciousness and approval to say, I'm in the right place. Spike Lee has always been the engine behind approving change in the Black community and saying, no, we need to go in this direction. No, we need to look at this. No, it's not time to sit down. It's time to speak up. And one of the realities of what he's done in film has created, he's created this marker of the way things should be to the degree that when someone else has come along, who I would consider the opposite of him, like Tyler Perry, especially in the early years when Tyler Perry was just coming out. It's created these dynamics of, it's honestly just like Spike Lee's film in school days. Are we going to be more welcoming to what 
makes us feel comfortable and like we don't want to push. I'm tired of pushing. I don't want to push anymore. Let's just be who we are and just wade in the water of it. And, you know, this just going to be what's going to be. Or, quote, play by the rules so that we can graduate and not get expelled for protesting. So we can get good jobs and and have social mobility. Or do we continue the fight? Exactly. I mean, back in the 80s, Spike Lee was the person where we got to go support this film. Because this is a black person making a film and he's the only one. So we got to go see it. Mm-hmm. So if we don't support ourselves, who's going to support us? So it was a, you have to support Spike Lee. And then you had this opposite end that came in the early 2000s. So the beauty of that is that now we have all these new directors and new creators and new artists that are filling in everything in the middle. Going back to what you said, supporting Spike Lee with his films. Okay, this was his second film. And it had such a big and powerful and bold message. The budget was $6.5 million. By 1988 standards, I mean, I would think that that was a pretty decent budget for a person right. only putting out their second film. So the box office was $14.5 million, And that matters. That matters because when you support him, then he will be greenlit to do other projects and continue sharing his message and, you know, shining a light on important social issues. So it matters that we support the people who are doing the hard work so that they can continue their mission. Yeah. And that doesn't come with its fair share of conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we see in school days. Mm-hmm. You know, the beauty of love and the beauty of, you know, resolution and forgiveness is that we can move to a place where we can actually agree. We may not agree on everything. Right. But we can agree on heartbeats. You know, my heart beats like your heart. Right. Exactly. If there are certain things that we we cannot agree on, we can agree that we at least need to respect each other. Yes. And this idea too, that look at within our community, look at the issues that are dividing us within our own community down to hair texture, for example, (laughs) light skinned versus dark skinned. Yeah. As a high school student, I didn't really realize that about my own culture because I know my family. I didn't have, once I got to Howard, I was like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. (laughs) Well, that had to be really different because I know at our school, like I would say that our school was primarily white, but there was a large Hispanic population. I don't know that we had a large black population. I don't know that we had a large Asian population. We didn't. We didn't. It didn't exist. When we were in school, when we graduated, I took a picture and we were so excited to take this picture because we were the four black girls that were oh, we were so just like ah so I grew up culturally aware but I didn't see the diversity of my culture yes because I wasn't going to school with people with a majority of people who looked like me right when you go somewhere else you're with people from all over the world with your same skin color yes I mean, and you're talking about children of dignitaries. You're talking about people who have changed the landscape 
of civil rights mm-hmm. who become members of the same sorority you do. And these become people that you live with. These are not just people that you just, oh, okay, oh, that's right. These are your peers. But they also become so close to you that now they are your children's godparent. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it just changed how you see yourself. I, I tell people frequently in the Black community, if you do not go to a Black college, you're missing out on really understanding your culture. Even though you are black. Right. And the reason why is because when you go to a black college, because of our legacy through slavery, it was the only opportunity that we had to get an education was to go to a black college. Right. So where do we lay all of our history? We lay it down in a black college. Well, it's so interesting that you say that because on the film's 30th anniversary in 2018, Spike Lee said, Black colleges are hurting. Many of the states that have state-run Black schools are still questioning their relevance. We brought that up in 88, but we still need them. We can do a lot more to support our schools. Black schools are who we are today. Each one we lose, we are losing a piece of ourselves. We are losing a piece of our history. It is who we are. It is our legacy. It is our lifeblood. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you're saying. You cannot understand who you are if you don't know your history. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, we, we can understand our history from the perspective of uh, reading it in a book or hearing it from someone in your family or your community where you're growing up. When you go to a Black college, we leave behind our contribution. Mm-hmm. There is such a thread in every aspect of what you do as a student at a Black college that you're you're understanding the fabric of how to operate and be comfortable in your own skin. My husband uh, went to a Black college and he likes to say, when I went to school, I was never rewarded or penalized for being Black. Well, there you go. I'm just who I am. Mm -hmm. We really have to find the peace to allow people in every heritage to embrace their heritage comfortably. Because when you understand your heritage individually, that's the only time that you're going to be able to be confident in who you are and engage with other people of other heritages. Was your experience then at Howard at all similar to what we see in this film, like the division between groups. Did you sense that at all? I think Spike Lee is really good at avoiding caricatures. And I think that's because, I mean, if you you watch Spike Lee talk, the man smiles when he talks, <laughs> but yet and still he's a very serious person. We know him as a very serious person. We know that through his art. We know that through, you know, conversations that you you see him have with other people. Um, But in this piece, I think he did a really good job with being accurate about what the problems are, who the characters are, without being uh, verbatim. Mm. The challenge with film is we only have 120 minutes for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to give 
a message, you're going to have to take some creative liberties in order to make the point. And I think Spike does that. So the difference is, is that even though I may have had some moments like what you see in the film, they have an arc. And the arc in real life is much longer than it is in 120 minutes. And there's much more nuance to it. Too. Right. Of course. It's very interesting because in terms of like the sorority, I know that you joined a sorority at Howard. Mm-hmm. The character of Jane Toussaint, played by Tisha, Tisha Campbell, Campbell. Of course. Yeah. God love Tisha Campbell. I know. Little Shop of Horrors. I know. I know. Did you used to watch that show? <laughs> this is a total segue. Sorry, I just have to take a quick detour. It was called Rags to Riches. It was a television show that she was a part of, and it was it was a musical show. I used to watch that when I was a kid, and I thought she was so amazing. Her voice is incredible, but I've got to go look it up now. I loved it when I was a kid. I don't know how how good it is, you know, if it holds up. <laughs> I got I, now. I got to look it up. <laughs> Her role, you know, she's involved in the sorority. She's a girlfriend of Julian from the fraternity, and all of this. Vanessa Williams was originally considered for that role, but she didn't want it because she found the light-skinned versus dark-skinned plot line too controversial. Oh, yeah. That's entirely understandable. Yeah. So Tisha Campbell took it on. And of course, I mean, we get to hear her amazing, amazing vocals. Yeah. You gotta understand the reason why I wanna try and make things right. Oh my gosh, sing the whole song, please. Oh, she did such a good job. Oh, such a good job. She took the role because she thought that it would be like a good sort of stepping stone for her vocal career. Well, wow. That's interesting. She really got to showcase. Mm -hmm. Oh, but her voice is, oh my gosh. And it's funny because when you when you look at Tisha Campbell now, you don't really see her as a vocalist. You see her more as an actress. Exactly. Martin. Mm-hmm. She wasn't yeah. getting to like really work her vocal chops. Yeah. Yeah. But she worked on that day. I mean, day didn't she? Set, she worked those. Yes. <laughs> the costumes. Can we talk about the costumes? Yes, we can. We absolutely can. They were designed by Ruth E. Carter. She was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Costume Design for Malcolm X, Amistad. She won the Academy Award for Black Panther. And she's worked on, you know, Do the Right Thing, What's Love Got to Do With It, Selma, and a million other amazing films. What an incredible talent. The costuming in this film was phenomenal. This is the thing, Lori, with her work, she does this wonderful thing about bringing in culture it's a, it's another form of communication i mean i don't really think people really see fashion designers the same way they see a dancer but it's the same it's exactly the same once you put your emotion into a piece of work it becomes a communication piece you know what i mean no i do there's there's actual like energy and lifeblood in the creation there is mm-hmm. so if you look at for example phyllis hyman is in basically like the end scene. She has a song and she's got on this hat that was very popular in the eighties. If you look through your yearbook, you will see my hair. Are you talking about your senior portrait? Absolutely. Tugne, I have your senior picture in an album. Okay. And I have your name under it and it is among my best friend's senior pictures. Your hair (laughs) 
is braided into a gorgeous crown. Right. So I wanted that because Angela Bassett was on the cover of a very popular magazine at the time. That, that's what she had. But that whole time period between like the mid 80s to the early 90s, we used to, to rock these different type of headdresses, hats even. Yes. And it would be just like a one piece, one long piece, but it would have a shape to it. And you would put it at the front yes. and it would Velcro in the back. Okay. And your hat would then look like a crown. But this is something that was very much a part of the culture during that time period. So she has a way in her costuming and her wardrobe to just crystallize the essence of what a director is really trying to accomplish culturally and speak through the wardrobe. I mean, when they're in the beauty shop, they, they've got these jerseys and biker shorts. Biker shorts yes. are huge. Oh, they were all the rage. Exactly. Let alone the swimsuits. It is the iconic film that it is because between the music and the wardrobe and the writing, it's just so seamlessly comes together in a way that gives you just one nice put together package yeah. for the same message. That's difficult to pull off. And the costuming, I took particular notice in the step show sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Phenomenal. And that fight that broke out after the step show, that was real. Yeah. That was real. Yeah. <laughs> Between the two that groups. Happened. It actually <laughs> happened. And Spike's like, keep it rolling. Right, right, right. Just amazing. I want to talk about the scene where DAP is told by administration, if you continue this protesting, you're going to be expelled. <laughs> we're, we're not going to let this go. So DAP is trying to rally his friends. Mm-hmm. Come on, guys. I need you to be doing this with me. I can't be doing this alone. This is a very interesting scene because he's asking his friends for support. These are friends who do indeed support his cause, but they also want to graduate, like we said, and they want to get good grades. One of them says, like, I'm first generation mm-hmm. and I'm not willing to throw my chance away. I cannot get expelled. Yeah. And they lovingly try to tell Dap, it's time to be quiet and shut up. Mm. Sometimes you got to just toe the line. Mm-hmm. Shut up. Whereas Dap is trying to tell everyone, wake up. And they're telling him, dude, we love you, but please shut up. You're hurting right. yourself. Yeah. Okay. So they then go to KFC, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and this is where these uh-huh. college kids interact with the community. Yes. Right. With some locals, you know, Samuel L. Jackson, we get a Samuel L. Jackson appearance right. here. Right. And these guys are a little older and they don't like the college kids. They don't like the kids in their community. And they're like, these college kids come in here. They think they're hot shots. They're taking all of our jobs. And Samuel L. Jackson tells them college doesn't mean anything. He calls them the N word. You're going to be this forever. You're going to be just like us. And Dap tries to tell them, no, that's not who you are, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and he walks away from what could have been a really aggressive scene between these guys. Mm-hmm. And in the car, I thought this was one of the most pivotal scenes in the film. The guys are all asking themselves, hush, do you think those guys tried and failed? Like, are they the way they are because they tried and they couldn't make it? Were they not given these opportunities 
Do you think that they're right? They were asking themselves. And and so I wanted to sort of talk about this notion of how challenging it really is, particularly when you're a young adult and, or if you move away and you're given this golden ticket opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. You're at the school and you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to do something with my life. You've got the support of hopefully your family, (laughs) right? Lifting you in this journey because this journey is going to change you. Right. The people back home might not like the person that you become. They might resent the person you become. So do you then sort of give up on these long-held beliefs or values from your culture or environment in which you were raised to pursue, I don't know, let's just call it a standard definition of success for whatever that means. Success Mm -hmm. means different things to different people, but like, let's just call it a nice house, you Mm -hmm. know, a good career where you make a lot of money, whatever. Like, is that selling out? Because your friends back home might think it is, right? Is it not holding true to who you are or what your beliefs are? Or have you simply evolved? Or are you turning your back from where you came from? You know, these are really, really big questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're particularly big questions in marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. In my background, you know, I was at Howard during a time when we had a set a sit-in during the administration building. Okay. And my theater department, a lot of those people who were in the department led that protest. We were fighting for keeping our degrees mm-hmm. because at the time we had a president of the university who did what was called a strategic framework. And he reframed all the colleges that were on Howard's campus. And part of that process was merging the College of Fine Arts with the College of Arts and Sciences. I see. And what that meant was that we were going to lose our BFA. And we weren't having that. Mm -hmm. Howard's BFA program. Renowned. It's the reason why I'm coming here. Mm -hmm. The reason why I'm coming here. I could have went somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You know, so the sacrifice that a lot of people made was worth the possibility of getting expelled. It it panned out some 20 plus years later. A good friend of mine, Chadwick Bozeman, Mm. he was someone who was in our department at the time and he risked his education and he sat in that building along with a lot of other people from my department. And although I wasn't someone who went to sleep in the A building, I was one of those first generation kids. I wasn't necessarily the one that was like, you know, I'm not going to risk everything, but you just have a different perspective when you don't grow up in the history, like a lot of my peers grew up in the history. So we weren't going to stand for that. No matter what you choose to do, you have to choose to accept the risk involved. Yeah. You cannot act as though I want all of my demands met because you're asking for a degree from the university. So you you do have to stop at some point and evaluate. Full circle, Chad bust his butt and never let that issue go. We did not win the battle at that time of keeping the College of Fine Arts. However, we kept our degrees. And you've got to be able to decide 
which fight is the fight that you're sacrificing and what's the value of it? Right. You got to stay in the fight long enough because if Chad let it go at that time, we wouldn't be a whole 20 plus years later with the College of Fine Arts coming back and then taking it back from arts and sciences. And now the building in the college is the Chadwick Bozeman College of Fine Arts Oh, because of his fight. My goodness. He's, he's just always been a very passionate person. If you knew Chad, he... Um, Tukane, I'm so sorry for your loss. I mean, the world lost an incredible soul, but you lost a friend and I am so sorry. Yeah, the contribution that he has made to the people who've known him, he, he was the type of person who would just see through you. And he's just been very dedicated to the process of listening. And that is what got us to where we are now with the college back. We fought so hard for that college not to be merged with arts and sciences. So what we see in this film with Spike Lee, they're not caricatures. They're very real realities. And you have to stay in the fight long enough to see that outcome. And you have to put in the work so that if something happens to you, the work gets carried on. And if you don't invest and suffer the consequences that you need to suffer for your values, no matter what those consequences are, you're not going to see the results. Your children are not going to benefit from it. And your ancestors are not going to smile right? because we're all living for a purpose. So I, I deeply value the contribution that Spike Lee has given, not just to our culture, but to the world to speak volumes into what you believe you because the world doesn't change without you standing for what you believe in. So even though, you know, we see that they get to this, this scene where Emma Jackson's character is challenging them on who they are and why they are. We have to acknowledge that if we're not in this double dutch of engaging with each other and working through the issues, then we're not going to ask the right questions. We're, and if we don't ask the right questions, we're not going to get to a point where we can resolve what's really going on. We can't resolve without dialogue. We can't resolve without conversation. We can't resolve without the ups and the downs. None of us are getting out of your life. So you might as well do something of value while you're here. And do you think that Samuel L. Jackson's character and the locals are feeling resentful towards these college kids because maybe they weren't given the same opportunity? I, I think there's a lot of things going on, but opportunity is based off of your openness to it. You can't see opportunity if you're not open to it. That's very true. If my mother had not created a space throughout my lifetime to understand the, the opportunities when it came time to say, just apply. You never know what happens. I would have stayed comfortable. You would have followed my path. <laughs> <laughs> but your path has us having this conversation. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we still get to have this conversation. Uh, yes. I found that dynamic between sort of the older generation versus the young up and coming college kids 
I found that dynamic very interesting because instead of the locals seeing these kids as a pathway to something bigger and brighter, they chose to look at it and shame it. Yeah, right. There was no lifting up. I think it's in every community, but because, you know, we're dealing with a cultural piece in the Black community, we have become very comfortable with racism and its impact on what we can and cannot do. Because you have to remember, I mean, it was a faux pas for us to read. Can you imagine? You don't have a right to read, let alone there's a Bible that's been distributed that certain things have been taken away so that you don't understand the whole freedom you have in Christ. That is like, okay, okay, well, y'all can read, but here's a specific kind of Bible we don't want you to understand. So when that starts to get passed down generation to generation, you know, culturally, there is a base of silence that is understood that says we cannot because it has not been given. Then you got a whole level of we have to figure out how to take what we need. But if Martin Luther King had not done what he'd done, by the way, I don't know, I'm recalling this because we're talking about this film, but Ozzie Davis was a big thing to be in this film. Ozzie Davis eulogized Martin Luther King. He was a football coach in this film. Ozzie Davis eulogized Malcolm X. So there, there's a lot that was happening in this film that wasn't even said in this film. There's a lot that speaks to change that if you kind of dig into the history of what was poured into this film, you're like, man, there's a lot being said that we don't even realize is being layers. said. Layers, yeah. Lots and lots of layers. So, you know, I think that we have to find a way to acknowledge our weakness so much so that it creates room for us to receive more opportunities and chances for change. And if you're not in an environment that tells you that's okay, then certainly resentment is, you know, it's a part of that process. You don't have a right. Who do you think you are? How do you think you can? I never did. So it's not possible for you and you're acting like it's possible. Well, it is possible. And unfortunately, in this moment, I've got to tell you, you're not who you think you are. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the wake up of it all. Throughout the film, there are numerous references to waking up. But in this final scene, we've got Julian and we've got Dap outside face to face. Mm -hmm. They're staring at each other. It's all coming to a head. And they turn to look straight at the camera where Dap says to the viewers, and of course he's been yelling, wake up all this while yelling it, mm-hmm. wake up, wake up. He turns to the camera and he says so calmly, please wake up. And then we hear the alarm clock sound and that's the end of the film. Let's talk about what Dap is asking us to wake up to. Again, there's so many layers. So many. I know. We could go. We could talk for three hours on this. Like layers. I know. <laughs> um, but this is a bookend for the film. So if we just start with the beginning, we have to acknowledge that one, it certainly is a wake up to who you are. When you put something like this, a cultural piece on film, it outlives the audience that you intended 
at four. Right. I grew up with this as a kid. I don't know if it was even on your radar as a kid. It wasn't. This was the first time I had seen the film. Right. So the intended audience for the film, now this is far beyond that now. So if you deal with it in context of the audience that it was intended for, then it is certainly a wake up to everything that we've seen between the two bookends and how these conflicts are being addressed. Here's a perfect story. At South Pass High, we had a requirement to pass swimming in order to graduate. My mom, at that time, for the most part, my mom was pressing my hair quite a bit. So we used to use what's called hot combs. Mm -hmm. And it literally would sit on the fire and take heat and Mm -hmm. press it up. So we were trying to figure out what we're going to do with this hair. Well, yeah, because you don't want to get it wet. Because you get this hair wet, it's going to turn into something different. Mm-hmm. So my mom was like, I got it. We're going to twist your hair. Okay. You go swimming, let it dry. Later on in the day, if you want to, you can untwist. It'll be like this, you know, curly thing going on. It'll be really cute. It'll be cute. It's all about looking cute. So here we go. All right. Gave it a try and voila. I was like, oh, this is cute. Okay. Oh, this is cute. There may have been a time or two where I was wearing my hair curly like that, how it naturally grows. Right. So that was not what people were doing. People were pressing their hair. And if they weren't pressing their hair, they were wearing a perm. So this was a real serious issue that was being addressed. And when I got to college, still, not really everybody was doing it. Now we graduated high school in 94. Almost by the time I graduate college, this 10 years between school days, I graduated college in 99. Mm-hmm. People still were not wearing their hair naturally. Natural. It was a thing when I was in college. And the only reason why I did it was because I didn't have my mom around. I was like, well, I know at least I know what to do now. Right. I can handle my hair, how it grows. and I'm good. I mean, I was wearing head wraps. I was doing things that people were like, you know, I should probably stop pressing my hair. But you look so cute. <laughs> the late 90s was this time frame where women were just starting to wonder. We're just starting to wonder. Right. Let alone embrace. You got to go through the wondering of it all. Embrace. Right. We're just starting to wonder, could I do that? Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. So that's just one issue. One of so, so many. That was one issue yeah. that, was dealing with, that was in this film. Yeah. So Spike just had so many different things in here that was in between the bookends that was like, wake up. The dynamic between Julian and Jane. Oh, ladies, wake up. For real. Wake up. up. The gaslighting. Right. We knew as an audience, but we're like, oh, okay. He's intentionally setting this up. So whether she does or she doesn't, he's got a reason to back out. The end, we see he's in bed with Jasmine Guy. Exactly. And it's like, apparently that was your plan the whole time. Wake up. Wake up. Yeah. I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. It gave me so much to think about. Mm-hmm. After I watched the film, I was actually listening to the soundtrack on Spotify oh because it's so good. The liveliness of it. And that's, that's something culturally that if you don't 
put it into a film, you have to be sure that I think we can be too serious about our films. And everybody's not in my camp, but I don't think Spike Lee does too much in regards to helping you to think through things. Even though he's he's got comedy and he's got drama and he's got music all in here, he makes sure that even in the, the comedy, he's talking seriously. Even in the drama, he's of course talking seriously. Right. Even in the music, in the dance, in the court, everything, he's still talking to you. He doesn't stop talking. He just puts it in a way where it's palatable. This just does something to wake me up out of where I'm sitting. That's just who he is. The man can't talk without smiling. And, <laughs> you know, as a white person, I'm thinking like, I don't know that I was the intended audience for this film. And then I think, I don't know that I wasn't the intended audience for this film. And that's what yes. iconic films will do. You weren't necessarily the intended audience, but it lives so much longer that it has a global message. Right. Right. I really admire what Spike Lee does as a filmmaker. And I could not make a film that's not palatable. This is the perfect segue. So I saw on your social media that you said in regard to your time at Howard, you said I was there five years and would turn college life into a catalyst for future hopes and endeavors to last a lifetime. I want to talk about those hopes and endeavors because you've had a very exciting career in the arts. You've been a dancer. You teach dance. I know you've worked behind the scenes in stage and film. As a director and filmmaker, you've already made, what, over 10 short films? Yeah, it's time for the feature. It's time. And so, of course, now you're working on a documentary mm-hmm. with the working title of Me Anita. Yes. You're addressing the disproportionately high Black maternal mortality rate. And I know that this is a deeply personal project for you. Yeah. Would you mind telling our listeners about what led you to take action with this very important issue through filmmaking? Yeah. I mean, with my first daughter, I didn't go into labor and I got on Pitocin for Mm -hmm. three days for the most part. And by the time, you know, we got to the C-section portion and, you know, I healed and everything like that. And by the time we got to years down the line, I'm going, okay, this time my body's going to have to go into labor. We're going to have to figure out something different. And I decided that I would go with a birth center. So I did. And we worked through having a midwife is night and day with just having an OBGYN. It's amazing. Yeah. Night and day. Yeah. So by the time that I worked with her, my body kicked into labor. I was like, yes, but I didn't realize that I had big babies. So I wasn't thinking, oh, okay, maybe part of potential complication is I'm going to have a big baby. Mm-hmm. So we're pushing, we're pushing, go back in the water, come out, push, go back in the water, come out, push, push in the water, push in the bed. And my midwife is like, okay, this is not going how we anticipated why don't you rest a little bit in the water and then we'll have you push. And if she doesn't come out this time, we got to take you to the hospital. I know you don't want a C-section, right. but we're going to have, that's probably what they're going to tell you when we okay. get there. But the whole time we can see your hair. We can see your hair. I mean, she's, 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 she's there. there. She's there, but she's not coming. No cord around her neck. Nothing like okay. that. She's just not coming. Okay. So we get to the hospital and 
they do a C-section and everything is good until about 24 hours later. Mm. I couldn't hold down any food. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Uh So the more this happens, now we're going into Uh three days later and I'm asking for imaging and I'm being denied imaging. I'm like, well, there's clearly something wrong. Right. You're asking all the questions. You're being perfectly honest about all the things you're feeling and experiencing. <sighs> and you're not being listened to. No. They've given me heating pads, suppository, walk it off. It's just gas. This is all the stuff that I'm being told. And it's obvious. I can't even eat anymore. And your intuition is telling you it's alarm bell sounding. There's all kind of stuff that was just way too obvious. Uh huh. Culturally, because of our history, it takes a lot for us to get to a point to say, I need help because we already know we're probably going to be dismissed. dismissed. Okay. So how much can I handle until I can just say what really needs to be said? Uh-huh. So that's already happening. But the day before, I pull a nurse cord in the bathroom because I can't make it to the bed. So the nurses begin to understand what's going on, but the doctors have said no. So the nurses are already like, uh, this isn't, this isn't isn't right. Right. So it ends up that the next day, because the nurses knew they answered the, the call button and said, is everything okay? That's normally not a response that they have. They just asked, how can I help? But he said, is everything okay? And I said, no. I said, I'm seeing double. I can't bear this pain anymore. I need help. And in minutes, my room was filled. It's called a rapid response call. Mm-hmm. One of the nurses override the doctors and called a rapid response. And in minutes, my room was filled with the head of the hospital at the time and all kind of people from different departments. Oh, and my goodness. I just, ima- I just remember people looking at me for a period of time and they weren't doing anything about the pain. And eventually I'm going, why is everybody looking at me? Why aren't you giving me something for the pain? And, you know, they got to figure out all the vitals and they got to figure out all of this before they can decide how much pain killer they can give me. So they end up giving me that and they said, I'm going to cry if I finish telling you the rest of this story, because this is where it gets intense. So I'm going to, it just, it just got, I had to get my stomach pumped for a few days and end up having another surgery. So I left the hospital maybe like a week or so after my baby girl was already discharged. (laughs) And mom is still there. Yeah. Long story short, when I left. I thought it was just a malpractice type of thing. However, I set a goal and I said, you know, I'm going to talk to 50 different attorneys. And then once I went, 50 is excessive. And it took me a while before I could even get to that point Mm -hmm. to seek some type of real legal counsel. Cause I didn't want to, I just wanted to be okay. I just wanted to raise my daughters. I just wanted to be a family because we were in the middle of moving And the ripple effect of how it ravished our family because of this, I didn't have the mental space. I mean, I didn't have postpartum depression with my first child, but I definitely had it in in this situation. Such a traumatic experience. Yeah. So it ended up that I talked to those 50 attorneys and I said, if I don't get an attorney that 
feels like this is a case that they can handle. I'm just going to make a film. Because at this stage, been in film about 12 years or so, Uh I'm going to just do a film. I didn't know how. I thought it was going to be more about, you know, just mothers in general, because I didn't realize I was risking my life like that, that it was that severe. Mm -hmm. It never processed that way. I knew I was risking my life, but not like that. Not like that. You said on social media, there's no reason I should be here right now. Who speaks for the moms whose lives were lost? And I always find it so inspiring when someone takes an issue that they've been so personally affected by and decides to take action because it requires a tremendous amount of courage to not only revisit that experience that was incredibly traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then to say, I'm going to lend my voice to this. I'm going to put my power behind this and I'm going to lend the voices of so many other people from a variety of angles have been affected by this one singular issue. Mm -hmm. And I was looking up some statistics because I wanted to learn more about Black maternal mortality. In February this year, the CDC reported, quote, in 2020, the maternal mortality rate for non-Hispanic Black women was 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births, 2.9 times the rate for non-Hispanic white women. The increase from 2019 to 2020 for non-Hispanic Black and Hispanic women were significant. So despite the advances in maternal medicine, right? Mm -hmm. The maternal mortality rate isn't getting better. Right. On April 6th this year, the CDC published a piece. And in it, they said, racial disparities exist. Straight up, it's written. Mm-hmm. Black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. Multiple factors contribute to these disparities, such as a variation in quality health care, underlying chronic conditions, structural racism, and implicit bias. Social determinants of health prevent many people from racial and ethnic minority groups from having their fair opportunities for economic, physical, and emotional health. Yeah. This is a huge problem. It is. But two to three times used to be what it said a couple of years ago. Now it's like concretely three times. Three times. And it's higher in other areas. Right. This is an average. Exactly. And I think that's something that's, that a lot of people don't kind of understand. It's like, okay, you know, you go to places like Philadelphia and it's much higher. So I didn't realize that I was dealing with a racial issue when I started talking to these attorneys, because I didn't know the angle I was going to take with the film mm-hmm. originally. And then when I started to go down that path, I realized that my story and a lot of other people's story who looked like me was the same. And I was like, wait a minute. Uh-huh. This is a blackish. This is a black issue. Let me tell you, Lori. I was transferred from the maternity ward to general surgery and all the OBs, they would rotate and they would come see me and they would talk to me and, you know, whatever. Cause I still had to get my stitches taken out. I still had, so OB still had to come. Like all the traditional you right. know, afterbirth care. Sure. I talked to the doctor that told me no. And I said, you know, I'm not sitting in the maternity ward anymore. I said, you're visiting me in a whole different ward. Don't you think that you should have said yes when I asked you? 
She looked me in my face and she told me no. That's being traumatized, re-traumatized all over again, that experience. It speaks to this issue in a way where the white coat is a level of authority. It's ingrained in the system. It's ingrained in a way where it's not like, okay, well, we can just fix this. The film has to happen because these are systematic issues that we're dealing with. I don't think that we've gone far enough into the systems of injustice that are ingrained in America against the Black community, which in turn creates it for the entire community in a national level. I haven't even addressed this on a global level yet. I can't even go that far yet. But when you address this and you deal with the police the criminal system, the justice system, you deal with the financial system, you deal with the medical system. There are so many systems that are working against us culturally. There is the Momnibus Act, Representative Lauren Underwood, Representative Alma Adams, Vice President Kamala Harris. These women have established the Black Maternal Health Caucus. Yes. I saw you talking on video about this. Right. Mm -hmm. And this caucus worked to establish primarily through the leadership of Representative Lauren Underwood, this Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act. And this Momnibus Act has has several bills in it. One has been passed already. There are several more bills that need to be passed in this act. This act, although it was addressed for the issues that Black mothers have been dealing with, it's comprehensive. And the comprehensiveness that we need to address with the Black maternal mortality rate helps to solve the mortality rate, period. Right. So the maternal mortality rate, just in the United States alone in general, There's no reason why we should be so progressive and the leader in just like everything that's happening politically and medically and advances in science where we are not able to get our hand on this maternal mortality rate. What's going on? We've watched the most elite Black women have had the exact same marginalization. We know that Serena Williams has talked at length Uh about her experience. And you think that's Serena Williams. That's not the average woman. Beyonce has talked about it. Olympiads. And this is not a matter of lower education, lower economic value. Mm -hmm. This this is not that kind of issue. This is simply based on bias. The only way we can attack this issue, one, we need more Black doctors. I'm glad you said it. You recently posted on social media. Look at me. I'm such a social media stalker. <laughs> You're like, God, Laurie, could you be weirder? Okay. Let's go. Let's go. All right. <laughs> you said you went in to have like your ear lavaged and you said, yeah, got my vitals taken, waiting on the doctor and walks a black woman, a young black woman. She's asking me all the questions about my woes. And I cannot tell you one thing she asked me. I tried. But the tears welled up so quick, I had to apologize and say excuse me while I grabbed a tissue. The last time I recall a Black woman walked in in any medical room to help me was 2017. Other than that, I have no 
memory. And you said yesterday was just an ear, but I have a heightened awareness of the need for black women to see health professionals who look like them during, and this underline all of this, their most vulnerable point of their medical need, mm-hmm. becoming a mother. It's simply heartbreaking to consider that without proper representation, without being heard, the most basic rights belonging to a patient in a vulnerable position, right? To be heard, understood, believed, supported, isn't a given. It's a real problem. And what you're doing with this film and what you're doing on social media, you're highlighting the names. Yes. The photos, the stories, right? You're giving a face to this and a name to this and a story behind it of women with so much life, with so much potential, Mm -hmm. with so much love to give. These are women that have been lost too soon to black maternal mortality. And you said, it is my hope that as we deepen this conversation in this creative space, that the stories of these women are chronicled with respect to the impact and contribution they gave to their families. I mean, truly the ultimate sacrifice to their families, loved ones, and society as a whole. Yeah. The hope is that we can rally enough women to understand the value of their story, not just so that they can tell it you know, for a moment of recognition, but tell it for their daughters, for their sons, so that their sons are better able to support, not just for Black women, but allies. Funding has been a challenge because my passion for this, especially because it's my first feature, I want to give it the space that it needs to be recognized, be acknowledged, be heard. You can just tell a story, but I'm not trying to just tell a story. I want to give back what was given to me. And if I take my lead from Spike Lee, he pours his heart into his films and he takes the meat of the issue and presents it in a way where we're able to say, I get it. I get it. I need people to get it. People know it's the issue. People know, but we don't know the face. We don't understand the face of Black maternal mortality. We don't understand the system. We don't understand how it works. Ava DuVernay did a beautiful job with 13th to be able to help us understand what's happening in the criminal justice system. And when you admire work from filmmakers like that, then you take your time to be sure. I, I really want to be done with this film by the end of the year because I'm attached as a subject in my own healing and recovery. And it's uh-huh. like, I just want to be done. I just want to be done. I just, I just want to finish this. But, you know, you've got to take your time because it's about a resolution. You said, please pray for Black mothers. The aftermath of these experiences do not heal easily, mm-hmm. quickly, and in many cases, at all. Right. And I know that that is the goal of the film. And I have often heard about documentary filmmaking that the documentary reveals itself to you, not the other way around. Right. Absolutely. What can listeners do to support you, Tugane, and this film? They can go to meandnitadoc.org and click on the support button. Okay. And there they're going to be able to find 
the crowdfunding campaign. Oh, wonderful. We will link to that in the show notes and we will link to all of your social media so people can learn more, educate themselves, find out more about the film and your progress. And wow, what an amazing thing you're doing. I'm so proud to know you. I miss you. I miss you too. I mean, you said that you'll miss me and love me forever. Howard university exclamation point. So (laughs) you're, you're holding true to it all. It was so great to talk to you about school days and me and Nita. And just, this is a little thing I'm doing. It kind of lightens the mood a little when, when we start talking about some heavier topics, I'm doing a little lightning round of questions with my season three guests. This is just fun, fluffy little stuff for people to get to know you a little better. Okay. We're taking it back to the nineties right now with alternative music. If you had to choose Pearl Jam or Nirvana. Nirvana because of the cover. Ooh, <laughs> the swimming baby. The baby. Okay, swimming exactly. baby. Yeah. Okay. Best fast food fries. Burger King. Ooh, I have never. Wait, have I gotten that answer? I don't think I've gotten Burger that answer. King. If we go back, maybe about ten years or so, Burger King fries. It was just they had this texture to it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think Burger King still does their fries the way that they used to. Old school Burger King fries. Old school Burger King. Fries. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Favorite 90s fragrance. I I don't I don't think I have one. Okay. I don't think I have one. Like if you said loves baby soft, I'd laugh and then I'd say, yeah, I'd mine too. <laughs> okay. Did you ever own a bucket hat? Never own a bucket hat. Oh, good call. Good call on that. Never own a bucket hat. Okay. Did you used to watch 90210, Beverly Hills 90210 back in the day? From time to time. Dip in and out maybe? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Who would you have chosen? Brandon or Dylan? You know, Brandon was the good boy and Dylan was our bad boy. I don't know. I, I think, I think I was more of the good guy type. Okay. What was your first car? I didn't have a car in college, but my first car was technically of 1987, 325 white BMW. Ooh, <laughs> she's fancy, you guys. That was in like 2000. That's cool though. <laughs> oh, Yes. The next question was, were you a latchkey kid? But it sounds like you were not. No. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what was your after-school snack of choice? After-school, probably peanut butter and jelly. Mm, Good one. Probably peanut butter and jelly. What film traumatized you the most as a kid? Chucky. Oh, child's (laughs) play. Yeah. That traumatized a whole generation. Yes. Gremlins was bad, too. Gremlins was bad. Gremlins was bad. It was bad. It was yeah. bad. Okay. What was your first concert? Ooh, my first concert actually was in college. Okay. It was the Outcast concert. <gasps> awesome. Outcast concert. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It was so exciting. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. This last question is for me. I don't know if you're a fan, but I ask everyone. Okay. I'm a huge fan. Okay. Favorite Elton John song? Oh, 
Elton John is a classic. He's just kind of like part of the tapestry of American culture and life. For sure. So it's not, you can't like not like Elton John. So if you said, I like all the songs, then I would accept that answer. I like all the songs, Lori. I like all the songs. That's the right answer. (laughs) Tugane, thank you so much for joining me and taking the time. Talking to you has been such a joy. I knew it would be. Again, I miss you. I miss you too. It's so great to be able to connect in this way. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. Thank you all for joining us. If you're loving the pod, I invite you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com, the Untitled Gen X podcast. You can find us on the web and the socials. And as always, we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye, everyone.